Before we get to the Bible, let's get to another important book. This is one of my children's favourite books. They go a little crazy every time they make me read it. I never volunteer to read it, but they make me read it. Uh, it's called, if you can see, The Book With No Pictures. Doesn't sound very exciting, does it? Doesn't sound the sort of book that a child would pick out. There are no graphics on the cover. There's no recommendations from famous authors saying this book is amazing, read it. Um, and the title seems a little bleak. It would be an easy book to dismiss, to ignore, to overlook, especially if you like books with pictures. This is not something that will pique your interest. However, if you allow yourself to stop and wonder what sort of book would make the title something that would put people off? What sort of person would write a book where that would be deliberately aimed at putting off people opening its pages? And then if you follow that train of thought, you'd be like, what sort of book? I want to know more about this book that's trying to make me not read it. And I want to read you the first few pages. I'm, I'm hoping it comes across as funny as my kids, uh, reading it to my kids at night time. It says, this is a book with no pictures. That's for the first page. It might seem like no fun to have someone read you a book with no pictures. It probably seems boring and serious. Except... Here is how books work. Everything the words say, the person reading the book has to say. No matter what. That's the deal, that's the rule. So that means that even if the words say, block, wait, that doesn't even mean anything. Blurf, wait a second, this isn't the kind of book I wanted to read. And I have to say every word the book says, uh-oh. I am a monkey who taught myself to read. Hey, I'm not a monkey. And now I am reading you this book with my monkey mouth in my monkey voice. That's not true. I'm not a monkey. Yes, I am a monkey. Also, I'm a robot monkey. What? And my head is made of blueberry pizza. Wait a second. Is this whole book a trick? Can I stop reading, please? No. And now it's time for me to sing you my favourite song. A song? Do I have to really sing a song? Glug, 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 my face is a bug. I eat ants for breakfast right off the rug. And it goes on and on and on. And if you are an adult reading this book to children, you are utterly humiliated by the end of it and your kids are going crackers on the floor. Parables worked in a similar way with Jesus. They provoked responses. They were deliberately engineered by Jesus to drive a wedge between two types of people. There were those that wanted to dismiss Jesus that thought he talked a load of junk. They thought they had all the answers. That they already needed most of what they needed to know and they wanted to push him away. And so when he told parables, they'd be like, you see, 
This guy's talking nonsense. His parables, his stories make no sense. They're irrelevant, they're complicated, they're something that I don't need. But there were other people. There were the curious people. The sort of people that would read the cover of that book and go, hmm, I'd like to know more. There were the people that thought, perhaps I have something to learn in life. Perhaps there is more to life than I already have acquired. And they were drawn in. They were uh, invited to listen further. And so I'm going to read a passage this morning, and that is going to be a test of us. Are we going to be drawn in to the passage? Or were we going to be pushed out saying, oh, it's boring, I've read it before, I already know what this has to teach me? Some of you will be like this. I will read it and your heads will be elsewhere um, and you won't pay attention. Some of us will be like, look, I've got out of bed early, I've come to church, I'm sitting in this cold hall um, and you know what, uh, I'm in it for the long haul, let's get on with it. And so we're going to see who you are. So, turn to Mark chapter 7. And it's verse 14. It says this. And Jesus called the crowd to him. Listen to me, everyone. Understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by go, uh, nothing can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And his generous, compassionate, loving question is: "Are you so dull? Are you so stupid?" Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then <clears throat> out of their body. We won't go into further that. In saying this, Jesus declared all, all foods clean. And Jesus went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then Jesus doesn't want you to be left with some vague ideas about evilness. You know, sort of write it off as sort of murderers and rapists and the real extreme ones. And he goes, let me tell you what evil thoughts are. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And so Jesus, here, right at the start, invites everyone to listen. He says, everyone, you know, believers and unbelievers, skeptics and people that think I have something to say. Let me tell you something. You all need to hear this. This isn't something only for the spiritual elite or the uh, ignorant. It is the sort of declaration here that the Old Testament uh, prophets would say, hear the word of the Lord. This is what Jesus is saying. Hear the word of the Lord. You all need to hear this. This is food for your bodies and water for your soul. And the expectations of the listeners would have risen. You know, when he said these formulas, they would have said, I recognise that. This is Old Testament language. This is something uh, um, that is inviting me to hear God Almighty speak something directly to my soul. 
It is going to be authoritative and provocative. Jesus uh, consistently does this. He says something with authority, you can't argue with it, and it's something provocative. It's supposed to make you go, oh, I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I want to hear it. And Jesus does both. You have to hear it, and it's going to make you uncomfortable. And so people lean in. And we find here the shortest parable ever. You can barely even see it's a parable. But it says, Jesus says that people are made clean um, and unclean by what comes out rather than what goes in. On a medical level, this doesn't make any sense. Putting contaminated food into your body is harmful. We have got something called Kosh at work that is particularly prescribed to stop people putting harmful bleach and window cleaner and stuff in their bodies because it will do horrible things to them. On a medical level, this parable makes no sense. On a religious sense, uh, and in a religious sense, this doesn't make any sense either. The law of Moses clearly says there are foods that are unclean, and when you eat them, you are made unclean. There is a transference of the status of uncleanness from the food to the body. So on a medical level, this is nonsense, and in a religious sense, this is nonsense. And the crowd are left scratching their heads. What on earth does this guy mean? The sceptics, they roll their eyes and say, see, we were telling you this guy speaks nonsense. It's not worth paying attention to. Let's go off and find someone else to follow. However, there are people that like books without pictures in, that are intrigued by stuff that they don't immediately understand, that are wanting to deepen their Spiritual awareness of God. Those that know Jesus, that have found him reliable teacher, someone that seems to say something valuable every time he opens his mouth. They're like, okay, this is a difficult one. Let's push in. Let's try and discern what Jesus is trying to say this morning. Now, in Mark's Gospel, which we've just read out, um, we find here that he talks to everyone and then he retreats. Can anyone read to me where he retreats to with his disciples? Does he go to a public library? No. Does he go to County Mow? No. What does it say? It says his home that he goes to a private house. And it's interesting because in Mark, again and again, the private house is important. It has a peculiar function. When Jesus goes to a house, there is something that happens. It is there that Jesus is going to make explicit the hidden meanings of the parables. You have the people outside that are scratching their head and the disbelievers are going, yeah, that's junk, I'm going to forget it. And the other people are like, I wonder what that meant. I wonder what I'm supposed to take home from that. And the disciples, they want an easy time of it. And they go, so what's the meaning of this story that you've told? And they get close to Jesus, you know, without all the noise of the hubbub. And Jesus opens up 
what was concealed. In public, Jesus' teaching was mysterious and hidden, and you had to go beneath the surface. But in the home, in the privacy of someone's house, Jesus opens up and reveals what was murky. And we find again and again in the book of Mark that home is a place of intimacy. It is a place of vulnerability and openness and revelation. Home is a place where we see a lot more clearly. Some of us live our spiritual lives entirely in public. We only consider God when we go to public meetings. We only scrutinise our actions when others' eyes are upon us. We only look at the Bible when we have to, and uh, we only watch our behaviour when we think someone else can see us. We're probably all guilty of that at some stage or other. The problem is that such a lifestyle, such a uh, religious lifestyle is impoverished. It leads us into ignorance. And it means our faith is really shallow because it's really just waiting for other people to point the finger. And it's not really a deep and meaningful faith that comes from the centre of our soul. And so you can learn, on a Sunday morning, hopefully, general principles like be generous, be forgiving, be patient. Our kids are learning the same. In Sunday school, these general principles uh, that God says, this is a good way to live. But we don't know how these relate to ourselves specifically. Each of us has our own temperaments, our own skills, our own attributes and our own circumstances. And each of us is supposed to take these general things and make sure they come out in our specific circumstances. If you've got a Bible, turn to the awesome book of James. Love the book of James. It's sort of a no messing Ones that uh, provoke all sorts of response. It's kind of like a uh, New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. And it says this. My dear brothers and sisters, in, one, in James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly, expect, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word. Do not merely sit in chairs on a Sunday morning and allow the sermon and the readings and the worship to wash over you. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face or her face in a mirror. Put your hand up if you've got a mirror in your house. Excellent. I am pleased because mirrors are important. So, you all know what a mirror is and you all know how to use a mirror. There's not some sort of mysterious thing for rich people. 
It's like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it. So they take action from what has happened. They will be blessed. Everyone say blessed. Who doesn't want to be blessed in what they're doing? Those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues to seed themselves and their religion is worthless. Everyone say worthless. Each of us, every single person in this room, has a private and personal responsibility to look at your lives unflinchingly in the revelation of Scripture and act on what you see. You've got to look at everything. There is not an aspect of your life that you are not supposed to deconstruct and see what it is made of. We need to go into secluded spots. This is not a time for it. This is your, your, your hear general principles and you will hear uh, uh, different ways of thinking and hopefully some truth. But you need to go into secluded spots and allow God to take this thing that was said on a Sunday and make it mean something so that you are different. I do not like the sound of my voice. Life would be a lot easier if we, uh, if I just went and listened to someone else preach, but I feel a call to say something, and I believe that call is supposed to produce fruit, supposed to produce change. The people that listen are supposed to somehow uh, become better and more mature because what I said. It's not because my words are good, but hopefully some of what I say God is involved with and it produces fruit. And we need to be intent on our personal holiness. This is not my holiness. This is not church holiness. This is your individual holiness, your individual sanctification. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you looked at a behaviour of yours or a thought pattern and said, you know, I'm going to stop that? In the light of scripture, in the light of worship, in the light of preaching, in the light of other people's ministry, I realise that's hurtful and I'm going to stop that. Hopefully it's been recent. And if it hasn't been recent, let me tell you, you need to. All of us have got behaviours that we do continually that are hurtful to others. None of us are perfect. None of us are without sin. All of us have got activities, thought patterns and behaviours and way of relating to one another that is harmful. And the scripture is designed to uh, round off the edges and stop you being sinful. When was the last time you went into a quiet room and said, you know, I need to change something. I need to add something. I need to have a new attitude. I want to adopt a new discipline because God's growing me up. And that old way of free loading, of um, uh, just uh, not being interrogative of my life, that's for little kids. 
Little kids don't think how they behave. They wander around, say the first thing that comes out of their mouth and grab whatever they want. And adults are different because they're growing up. And scripture and preaching and worship should have the same effect where it changes us and forever changes us. Where each day we look to be different than the day before. Each day we look to be a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit more like the selfish little infant that we used to be. So, away from the crowds, Jesus' disciples asked for a shortcut. They go, so what's this meaning of this parable? Jesus, we can't be bothered to think about it. We just want to be told. Jesus is a little frustrated that his disciples are behaving like little kids. They're not prepared to do the hard work. They're not prepared to think things through. How many of us have found a bit of scripture, struggled to get through it, and then just moved on because we couldn't be bothered to spend a little bit of time on it. And Jesus says, are you so dull? Are you so slow? Are you so resistant to spending a moment in Scripture that you won't pursue the thought? And we can all be guilty of it. We want a quick answer. Life is so fast, we haven't got time to ruminate on Scripture and allow God's uh, uh, mysteries to percolate into our soul. We need it now. We need a quick answer. We want a verse to go on our fridge and a memory verse to take us through the day. And God says, yeah, are you so dull that you can't spend some time on Scripture? There's the riches of God, authoritative and prescriptive and uh, full of good stuff. And we just want to race through them. Jesus tells the answer, you know, I've got things to do, there's things in the oven, and um, I've, I, there's so much hanging over me, can't possibly wait for a moment on scripture. And Jesus says, are you so dull? Are you so ignorant? Do you really think time spent elsewhere is better than time thinking on what I'm trying to tell you? Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, it says this in verse 31. The days are coming. So this is a prophecy um, in Jeremiah 31, 31 of the future. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, new testament, a new agreement. We are in this period. When we read this, I want you to recognize that we are there now. There is a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. The old covenant, which depended uh, um, in part on them, which just didn't work out. You can't rely on people. If you've lived any amount of time, you know that people are unreliable. And God says... Uh, you guys were unreliable. We need a new covenant where I've done everything. And uh, he goes on. Um, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I really like this bit. No longer 
will they teach their neighbour? Or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says, he appoints the sun to shine by day and who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. We'll leave it there. Jesus' death and resurrection means the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside those that have confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour. It's not an option or extra. It's not something that you need to necessarily ask for. It is a down payment, a guarantee of this new covenant. And this Holy Spirit isn't there just to make you feel warm and cuddly. He isn't there just to make you feel good about yourself. He is going to lead you into truth. He's going to grow your sorry ass up. He's going to make sure that you don't stay an infant, but that you become a fully-fledged spiritual adult. And what we need to do, we need to wait on that Holy Spirit that God has put in our hearts. I can preach till I'm blue in the face, and I often do, but that doesn't make you change. can't. The Holy Spirit takes what is said, what is sung on a Sunday morning and perhaps what you read and devour during the week and it makes it applicable to your circumstances, to your temperament, to your values and says, you know what? You need to change that. That is out of order. That thing that you're doing, you could improve on that. And so Jesus has compassion on, compassion on these dim-witted, impatient disciples and explains to them. He says, let me unpack this for you. Jesus says, being fastidious over external aspects of your religion is of no worth. Everyone say, no worth. No worth. No worth. Doesn't matter what you look like, it is of no worth. In the first century, Jesus was dismissing ceremonial washing. The Pharisees loved and loved lots of washing and, and uh, cleaning and making external things uh, clean. In the 21st century, we have our own religiosity. Let me give you a few things that have no intrinsic worth. Praying out loud, not worth anything. Worshipping with your hands up, forget about it. Giving all your money away does not make a jot of difference. Looking smart on a Sunday morning, some of us are better than others at that, does not matter here. Has no value. Knowing all the answers? No. Tidying up, setting up has no value whatsoever. Being up the front means nothing. These things have no value in and of themselves. Someone doing these things, it does not prove anything. They may look impressive and you may see, oh, that one looks like a spiritually mature person. But all of those things and a whole lot more that you could name can all be done with a sense of performance. People's eyes upon me. I want to be an impressive religious figure. I am going to behave in this way. All across the country... There are preachers and worship leaders and elders whose lives are rotten to the core. But when Sunday comes, they can put on a performance that will uh, just bless your socks off. And you think, oh, wow, that person's really good. 
but it's a performance. And Jesus says it has no intrinsic value. What our Heavenly Father cares about is not how well I speak, but it's the condition of my heart. And it's the same with you. It does not care if you give a long prayer on a Sunday morning or are too shy and quiet to say boo to a goose. It's the condition of your heart. And he sees through your charades, all your actions that make you look holy, all you bless you, all your I'll pray for that. What he looks for is passions and enthusiasms that look like his. That are proof that his spirit is in us and that we give him time and space to make us grow up. And I could end there and it would be really easy just to leave with these general principles. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. And this is quite brutal. Because Jesus says, let me tell you what it doesn't look like in your heart. Let me tell you what the inside dialogue specifically should not include at all. And we get this list that shows, do not pay attention to your outward performance. Turn and look at your heart where the spirit is. We must be disciplined in how we think and what our heart dwells on. Leave aside all your activities for a moment. What is your heart dwelling on? What do we allow our minds to consider when we're not at church or even when we're in church and we've zoned out the preacher? Well, if you think it could not get any more uncomfortable than this, you're in for a surprise. The very first thing that Jesus says is sexual intimacy. Hallelujah! I really want to talk about that because I don't. I'd much rather talk about other things. But Jesus says sexual intimacy is really important. Isn't it interesting? It's the first on his list. We live in a culture that says your, what you do with your private parts is your private issue. You know what? We're not going to put law against it. You, it's up to you what you do with it. And that's what society out there says. What you do with your private parts is your own private business. And Jesus says, well, no, not really. He says, sex should not occur outside, before or after, heterosexual, covenantal, which means you'd like to have a sort of marriage of promises and stuff, monogamous relationships. Does not occur outside of that. If you are having sexual activity outside of that, that is sinful and your heart is defiled. Don't care how many worship songs you can sing. Don't care how well you can preach. Don't care how many tongues you come up with or how long you serve on a Sunday morning. Your heart is defiled and wretched and you are no good. This is the most private thing. And I would really appreciate not having to talk about this at all. But Jesus lists it as the very first thing a defiled heart gets on. The sin is not worse than the others because we also make that mistake. Christians, you know, we point the finger and somehow this 
is worse than every other sin and sends us on a direct highway to hell. It's not true. It's not the worst of all sins. But it is one that's particularly compelling, particularly attractive, and it can occupy our thoughts a lot. It's really easy to get into and have a performance outside of it. And I think it's also really damaging. And I, without being too judgmental about the society that we go down. When we ignore this, other things get damaged. Family life goes to pot if there is sexual activity outside of a heterosexual covenantal monogamous relationship. Things go to pot. Family life, this thing that God put in place as a, as a foundation for uh, the architecture of society, gets eroded and damaged and taken away. And you know what? If you don't allow God to prescribe what you do with your private parts, perhaps there's other things that he doesn't have to say anything about too. Perhaps there are other parts of your life that are for other people and don't apply to you. And you can start to erase other bits of scripture as well if that bit doesn't apply to you and doubt creeps in and then people uh, just give up God because it is a slippery slope. Let's leave that for a second. Instead of plotting accumulation of all the things that we can buy, and it's really difficult in the world of ads, um, there are social media streams that seem to sell me something every other post, and it's uh, quite infuriating. But instead of plotting accumulation, all the things that we can buy, we should long to give away wherever we can. We must be content with our material wealth that we earn for ourselves or that society has allotted to us through the benefit system. There is a call on us to think, I'm going to make do with this and not get greedy and not long for stuff that I haven't got, as if that stuff is going to make you happy. What about your enemies? People that talk smack about you or that just make life difficult and hard work. It's really easy to long for something a little bit unhelpful for them. Or when we hear, and I hear this a lot at work, when something bad happens to someone we don't like, they go, oh, I believe in karma, yeah, that got that person. And when we live like that, that is damaging and it is proof of a defiled heart. And if you've got a defiled heart, then everything else is performance. Every other expression of your faith is just superficial. You can look really impressive on a Sunday morning, but if your heart is defiled, God goes, I can't use you. We're supposed to love them, not hope for their demise. We're to hope for their blessing. And we hope for the God's favour on all of those around us. We need to watch ourselves so we don't try and manipulate others. We're really good at this. Using language, uh, using actions to get other people to do what we want. Because we're the most important person, aren't we? 
We need to be honest about our deficiencies, all the ways that we don't uh, make it, make the grade. And we need to remember that God's opinion of us is the most important one. Performances on the Sunday morning um, and everything else, they're rubbish compared to the condition of our heart. I wonder how you feel about what God's given to other people. I wonder what you feel about God giving people, perhaps people that don't know Jesus, lots and lots of things. Or Christians that you think are worse than you, they've got more wealth. How does that work out? If we wish we possessed what God has given to someone else, we expose an ingratitude and a defiled heart. If we act and go around going, oh, my God, did you give them that? I could have really done with that. Or if you come into someone else's house and you are full of jealousy and you go, God, what? These people are rubbish. Why didn't I get this? At the end of John 21, there was this bit that just exposes Peter. And Peter asks Jesus about John. He goes, you know, what, what's he going to get up to? Where's he going to go? And Jesus says, mind your own business. And I think a lot of Christians would do really well to do that. Stop minding other people's business about the stuff that they have and the blessings that they're receiving and somehow feel that that is a mark on you. God is dealing with them independently of you. What about saying unkind things? Unkind things about others to discredit them, you know, put them down, to make people see what the real side of the people that we don't like. I think if, I, if I've got older, I've, I've discovered there's something, there's something wonderful about this. You know, um, I don't always find myself in uh, uh, the groups of insiders, particularly at work, and I can feel outside. And then you come across the subject of gossip and it suddenly includes you and excludes other people. And there's a sense of, oh, I'm an insider now and these are my people and that person out there is, uh, they're rubbish and wrong and they're immoral or they're, uh, they don't know how things work. Proverbs 18 verse 8 says, the words of gossip, and this is true for all sin, let me be clear, all sin has an element of uh, attractiveness about it. It says, the words of gossip are like choice morsels. We've got some chocolates from Hotel Chocolate, and they are a cut above the normal galaxy chocolate that I eat. There is something interesting and uh, delectable about them. And the words of gossip are like choice morsels. They're particularly attractive and they go down to the inmost parts. But that is not a good thing. Gossip and speaking badly about others is a sign of a defiled heart. If we excuse, or, uh, and this is quite good, if we excuse or celebrate in ourselves things that fall short of goodness, we demonstrate evil. If there are things in our lives that we know we're not quite there yet, but we somehow make a big deal of, 
we're just full of this self-congratulation. If there is something in us that is not perfect and we make a big deal of it, God says, your heart is defiled. If you think and you sit in this room and you're like, I am just ticking these boxes, Kevin. I am sailing through. I hope all these other people around me are listening because there are all sorts of aspects in their lives that need God's touch on them. The Holy Spirit needs conviction. Please, Lord, convict all these people to show how they're out of order because I am good and they need to be more like me. If that's you, you're really defiled. That is, that is a sign that you are really confused. Finally, guys, be pleased with this one. If you are morally and spiritually insensitive, things are very bleak indeed. Your work life, your home life, your media consumption and church life should constantly pose questions about your faith. Should constantly provoke you to think, what do I think of that? You need to examine, and I need to examine, our inner dialogues and motivations on a continual basis. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What is my reason for acting like this? Holy Spirit, I need your help to discern if this is profitable or something less than profitable. You need to invite the Holy Spirit to show us stuff that we thought was fine. As you grow up in the faith, God will increasingly be bothered about stuff they had left behind. We often find people, they uh, become Christians and they're smokers. And we're like, you know what, we don't need to worry about that particular habit. God will deal with it in time. God will deal with uh, the uh, particular acts that are damaging in the fullness of time. As they grow older, you expect Christians to knock off the edges of things. Um, I've often heard church life explained and discipline explained. We discipline you for the things you get into, not the things you're getting out of. So if you come to us a real mess, we're not going to haul you over hot or cold, shit. But if you are an experienced Christian and you start smoking and drinking and sleeping around, that is a sign that things are going badly. And as our hearts are made clean, so the things that come out of our hearts come clean. You bless other people. God is pleased with you. You do a better job of uh, being salt and light in creation. And as we move in that direction, you don't need, and this is what I love about that bit in Jeremiah, it says, we don't need other people to tell us what is what. You don't need a preacher to tell you these things because you've got the Holy Spirit already in your heart. He already knows what uh, you need to sort out. And as you model that, blessings come. And so, this is, I really like this. So you can come here and come in late. You can come in dirty and smelly. You can come in with a frown on your forehead. You can have your hands in your pockets and you can come in gruff. Uh, and God, if you have that pure heart, God will say, welcome. It's your heart that matters. Not these externalities that we often get obsessed about. What is your heart doing? 
Let me close in prayer. And let me encourage you to think about these things. Find secluded spots. Find a moment to not be dull and stupid, but allow the Holy Spirit to say, this needs working on. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made us and know us better than anyone else. Lord God, and we just open up our hearts to you. Lord God, I open up my heart. God, I realise um, that's a thing that I don't always want to do. But Lord God, we open our hearts and, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring purity here. Lord God, we don't want to have evil thoughts. We don't want to have things that defile us. Lord God, we don't want to push you away. We want to know you more. We want to know truth more. Lord God, I pray that you would change us, that this week would be an experience where uh, evil is rejected and holiness is embraced. And Lord God, I pray that this would practically work out, not with sort of vague ideas of goodness, but with concrete examples in each and every one of us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.